we had the latest start to the spring. I would just say it was a very dry year for us. It has been a challenging year for growers. Welcome to Extension Out Loud, Season 2, Episode 2. This is our second Harvest Highlight episode. I'm Paul Treadwell. And I'm Katie Balden. Hey, Katie. Hey. And this time we talked to Craig Kelke. He's the team leader and a fruit quality management specialist with the Lake Ontario Fruit Program. And we talked to Mike Bazdow, tree fruit specialist with Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture Program. We talked with Craig and Mike about tree fruit, especially apples, which are a huge industry in New York State. New York is second only to Washington State for apple production. We talked about some of the challenges of this season, this growing season, some opportunities and planning for next season or seasons to come, and just overall the industry and market for apples and tree fruit in New York State. It was interesting in our conversation with Craig Kelke, we talked a little bit about the impact of tariffs on exports. And if you listen to his conversation, there's some really interesting things in there that I hadn't realized or hadn't really thought about in that context. But once we finished with Craig and Mike, we jumped over to talk to Laura McDermott, who's also with the Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture Team. She's the team leader and a small fruit and vegetable specialist. We had a fairly wide-ranging conversation with Laura where we talked about berries, and because the Eastern New York commercial horticulture team covers such a wide region, we got to talk about some of the regional differences and really look at some of the microclimates that affect the production of different types of berries across her zone. Microclimates are also something that played a fairly important part in our conversation with Craig Kelke, although we didn't identify them as such. But when you start really looking at production in New York State, it's amazing how diverse we are as far as climates and zones and regions and how that impacts the growing. So we got into some of that with Laura, and we also did brush up against the issue of high tunnels again. Hmm. It's one of those things that keeps coming up. And without further ado... Craig Kalki, team leader, fruit quality management from Lake Ontario Fruit Program, Cornell Cooperative Extension. We're a regional ag team that works with commercial tree fruit and small fruit growers in five counties along the Fruit Belt in Western New York. My office is in Lockport and Niagara County. I also work in Orleans County, Monroe, Wayne County, and Oswego County as well. What has this year been like? This year has been a frustration. <laughs> to- least. Climate change, it's a real thing. Regardless of not whether people think it's man-made, our growers, we have a lot of apple growers that have been growing apples for multi-generations, for over 100 years. And they keep really good detailed records of when the first frost is, when trees start to get green tip, when they get green tissue, when they start growing in the spring, when full bloom is. They're picking certain varieties. We've just had so many crazy weather patterns. To start, we had the latest start to the spring, so the latest growth, what we call green tissue in apples, when you first start to see the apples growing, because again, they're deciduous, so they pull their leaves in the wintertime, and then we monitor when, we, when they start growth. So at the latest, we're probably about two, two and a half weeks later than normal. We have the latest start to a spring in about 25 or 30 years, because we had that cold weather in March and April. We caught up because we got a lot of warm weather, and then it got dry really quick. And we definitely had droughty conditions. We had more drought in my neck of the woods. We kind of divide up our territory since the city of Rochester is in the middle, the west side and the east side. So the west side is more Niagara, Orleans, the west side of Monroe County, Rochester. And then the east side is east of Rochester, Wayne County, and Oswego County. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Wayne County, coincidentally, is the apples in Wayne County than my other four counties put together. So it's like the apple mecca. There's actually more apples in Wayne County than any other county uh, east of Washington State. Wow. There was more drier in Niagara and Orleans County. Wayne County had more hit or miss thunderstorms in June and July, but really, really dry. And if you recall, 2016, we had the mother of all droughts. Telling growers for years, um, growers the new plantings you see are high density plantings. So they're on, they look like grapes. They're on trellis with posts and wire and the trees are really dwarfed. They, they keep them trimmed to below 12 feet in height. So we can do a lot of things mechanically with, with mobile platforms and things and more efficiently. Uh, not climbing giant trees and moving the ladder around all the time. Some of the problems with these dwarfing rootstocks, they need small but frequent doses of water. So growers have planted apple orchards for decades and decades. One we usually get more than enough of is rain during the growing season with thunderstorms. Irrigation is kind of an expensive thing that they wouldn't think about. Spending anywhere between eight and $15,000 an acre to put in a new high-density planting of a high-value variety the consumer wants, like Gala or Honeycrisp or Snapdragon, one of the Cornell varieties. Uh, maybe a couple extra thousand to put in an irrigation system, but we've been preaching for years that it's well worth it. Growers are still thinking that we're going to get these hit or miss thunderstorms and we don't get them. And I think by the time they do irrigate, if they have access to irrigation, it's almost too late. Like the trees are stressed. Mm. We get bouts of extreme heat as we get into, into maturity and it really wreaks havoc with havoc the apples. And that's what we had this season. The earlier season varieties, August right up through the end of September, their maturity is kind of based on what kind of growing season it's been leading into maturity. So if we get hot, dry weather like we did, maturity is delayed. Just the same kind of weather that you get good coloring on your fall foliage, you get good coloring on apples. You need cooler, clear, sunny days and cooler nights. And when you have a lot of cloudy weather, when you have a lot of rainy weather, when you have a lot of warm weather, you don't get ideal coloring. And we did not get ideal coloring. So the, what happens is the marketplace wants X percent color on certain varieties and growers wait and wait and wait. And sometimes that doesn't come. So that's kind of a predicament we were in this year. A lot of the September varieties, they were waiting for maturity and they waited too long. And then we got a lot of rain and the fruit got soft. October varieties, the maturity is really not dependent on the weather. It's pretty consistent from year to year. So we get this crunch. Growers get behind, they get some bad weather days or if they're short on labor, then it's really difficult to get varieties picked in the right time. And one thing I think they're not realizing is the stress of the growing season really affects how these apples are going to store. We did have a lot of rain late. We've had too much rain late, but the apples shouldn't be as soft as they are. And I think it's because they were stressed from the heat and they were stressed from earlier in the season when they're growing, when the fruit are in really exponential growth phase, high mm -hmm. conditions. So it's not been a great year. How does it compare to last year? Yeah, last year was a pretty good year. I mean, we had a really good sized crop last year. We had timely rains and good crop size. You uh, mentioned that the different weather factors impact the color of the fruit and the yep. texture of the fruit. Do mm -hmm. they impact the flavor at all? They do. They definitely do. There's some varieties that are kind of bred in the Northeast, Empire and Cortland and Macintosh. And they seem to not like the heat either, but their flavor doesn't seem to differ as much. And another thing that I want to stress is a lot of these newer, what we call high value varieties that growers get really good returns on, but they're more difficult to grow like Gala and Honeycrisp and Snapdragon. 
they're multiple varieties. So they don't all mature at the same time on the tree. So growers have to go in and pick them times four or five times in the case of Honeycrisp some years. So that's expensive to come through the orchard multiple times and to pick out smaller volumes of fruit. And if they're waiting on color, a lot of times a lot of fruit sits on the tree and doesn't get picked. And yeah, flavor is definitely affected. I think the Snapdragon flavor was pretty good. It really wasn't affected by all the late rain that we had. But Honeycrisp are kind of famous for being funky with the type of weather. So, I mean, there is good Honeycrisp out there. There's good Honeycrisp from New York in the marketplace. But also a lot of fruit that I've tasted and it's just like, wow, they don't taste like what I remember a good Honeycrisp should taste like. And again, it's, it's the stress of the growing season and having poor weather conditions late as the fruit are maturing. Yeah. So, Craig, are there many heirloom varieties out there? Or are you dealing mostly with people who are doing That's that? That's a good question. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many apple varieties. And the, unfortunately, the commercial fresh fruit industry is really going towards, well, if you look at all the different varieties in the supermarket, there's a lot of club varieties. Crazy. It seems like every packing house in every region kind of has their own club varieties that they're trying to market and compete with the other varieties. You know, there's the main varieties that we're growing and Washington's growing and Michigan's growing and we're all in competition, you know, and that's Gala and Honeycrisp and Fuji and Red Delicious. And there's the whole slew of these club varieties mixed in for lesser volumes. But when I hear heirloom varieties, I do think of kind of cider varieties. That's an exciting thing. You know, there's, we have more hard cider, cideries here. Uh, in New York than any other state. And we're doing a lot of research on that as well. A lot of crazy varieties that people have never heard of. And some of them are kind of heirloom American varieties and some of European varieties that are just bred for cider content. You know, they have these high tannins can get the, the gamut of flavors from like wine from dry all the way to sweet. So the cider makers really, they're after these apples with these high tannins and they're, they're called spitters. You, you've been into one and it doesn't taste like an apple. It's got a lot of tannins in it. It's got a lot of bite to it. There's residual sugars in it, but you wouldn't want to eat that apple fresh. Are we in New York State consuming most of the apples within the state, or is there a, a no, big... Good question. No, we ship fruit all over the eastern seaboard. I mean, Washington is our big competition, and they ship a lot of fruit to the east because more of the population's in the east. But we ship our fruit all over the United States, and we export fruit to probably at least a dozen different countries. But some of the biggest places we export are to Mexico, Canada, Korea... England, Israel, our fruit goes all over the world. Have the growers noticed any impacts from the implementation of tariffs and and some of the trade restrictions? Has that impacted your growers? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely going to impact. I don't know the details of it, but it's a global marketplace and we don't export nearly as much fruit as Washington. But the bottom line is if Washington is restricted by these tariffs and there are a lot of tariffs you know, besides the ones and being put on by the current administration, tariffs by other countries too. So if Washington exports less fruit because of these tariffs, what happens? They send more fruit and competition in our marketplace. So it definitely affects us and growers are not happy about it. I hadn't thought about the impact on the market internally by restricting exports. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. Let's get rolling here. Tell us about yourself, who you are, and where you are. Mike Basau. I'm a tree fruit extension specialist in the Champlain Valley, and I cover the Champlain Valley and also the northern end of the Capital District, so I'll cover just about down to Albany. Do you overlap with uh, Laura McDermott and her berry thing? I do, yeah. So our team 
is composed of a number of different specialists. Laura is a very small fruit person. I cover tree fruit. I cover specifically apples and peaches and pears and just about any fruit that grows on trees. What team is that, Mike? I'm on the Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture Program. Great. And how has the year been for apples specifically? Eastern New York's kind of been interesting this season. The southern half, like the Hudson Valley, has gotten a lot of rain, so they've had their own separate sets of of issues. But uh, the Champlain Valley has been particularly dry this season, so we have struggled a little bit here and there on fruit size just because we haven't had enough water. That's been a challenge for us. But the good news there is that it's been a relatively light disease year because of that lack of moisture. Are there any particular highlights in weather or any of the conditions this year that differ from previous years? So overall, I would just say it was a very dry year for us compared to others uh, really throughout the summer. Just really little bit of rain here and there. And then finally in September, we started getting some moisture as it was time to pick. So that was a bit outside the normal. Test-wise, we had a pretty high amount of apple maggot too. So that was a bit of a, a challenge for us, but... The growers were on top of it, and we were able to manage through that pretty well, I would say. But that was the two big standouts to me this year. Okay. Uh, and then also just maturity-wise, it got pretty warm in the beginning of September, so we are a little bit behind maturity-wise. The heat kind of delayed our color here and there. Mm-hmm. So it was a pretty slow harvest season with the rains as well. It took a little time to get the color where we wanted it at. Yeah. Mike, what's the predominant farm size there? Are you dealing with smaller producers, medium, or large producers? Depends on which part of the region you're in. Up in the Champlain Valley, we have fewer farms, but they're larger. A bit smaller compared to western New York, for sure. I would say our largest farm is probably around 1,100 acres. And then in the southern part, down near the capital region, they tend to be more smaller farms, and they're more direct marketing. So a lot of them are pick-your-owns have a farm stand out front, have a petting zoo or, or something along those lines. Whereas in the Champlain Valley, we're a bit more wholesale oriented. So larger packing houses selling directly to the supermarkets. And are most of the apples, are they being marketed as whole apples? Are they being processed at all? I believe we do mostly whole apples. Yeah. They'll either do them in bushel boxes that they'll send to grocery stores or they'll do them in the bags. But predominantly, they are whole fruit. I think some guys will send a couple down western New York to get processed by Mott's or one of the other processors. But for the most part, they're aiming for wholesale, whole fruit. So, Mike, what are the popular apples out your way? What are people growing these days? Historically, we've been Macintosh country. Macintosh really likes the cold weather. It's really the spot to be to get a really nice, firm, hard Macintosh. So they've been really popular, and they're still probably our most extensively planted, but that's been shifting in recent years. The younger crowd is not as interested in Macintosh. They really like the really crisp, sweeter apple. So Honeycrisp has really kind of taken over, and like Macintosh, they do best in a cold climate. You really get the best color in the colder production region, so the Champlain Valley really is a perfect spot for Honeycrisp. Then we're also trying to find other varieties that work well up here. New York 1 and 2, Snapdragon, Ruby Frost, they've been popular as well. They're being planted. And then some growers are trying out some other new varieties as well here and there. But then we also have some of the other classics too, Cortland's, McCowan's. 
people are planting Honeycrisps, you're kind of planning for production like a decade from now, aren't you? How long does it take for a, an apple tree to come to maturity? Generally, with the high-density systems we have now, we can start getting a crop off two or three years after planting. Wow. We won't hit full production till at least probably year five or six, I would say. And then generally, the life of an orchard is about 20 years. We usually start replacing trees after 20 years just because at that point, numbers start slowly declining as the trees get older. Now that picking season is starting to wind down, what sort of things are growers doing after the picking is, is over to prepare the trees for cold weather? Now that the fruit's just about picked, they're really getting into the marketing aspect of it all. Mm-hmm. So it's it's figuring out where to send all their fruit to, particularly for the wholesale guys. They'll store their fruit for a couple of months, depending on how the market looks, and they'll decide from there when they're going to take their fruit out of storage and when they're going to sell them to the doors. So that's a big part of what they're going through in the next month or so. Hmm. And then once we get into the new year, they're going to start pruning their trees. So that's generally in the middle of the winter. They'll start taking off some of the branches, open up the tree, and that just promotes the health and the, the fruitfulness of the trees. So what do you think the next year or two is going to bring for apples and tree fruit? The big question that we have, really where variety choices are going. I think a lot of people feel like the day of the Honeycrisp is still going strong, but people are looking for what is that next Honeycrisp going to be? And that's really anyone's guess right now. There's so many factors there, topmost being consumer preference. You can control pests and diseases, but it's really hard to figure out what people want. You know, it's, <laughs> it's hard to do a research project on that. With all the different varieties coming out, and our growing season pretty much wraps up in mid-October because we it does get fairly cold, and we can't ripen really late varieties. So a big thing for us is just figuring out which ones can we grow well up here, and what are people going to really be interested in in the next few years. We have these orchards for 20 years, so you're planting now and hoping that 10 years down the road, people are going to like this variety. So it's a bit of a guess and a gamble. That's a big one for us right now. And then we're also just keeping an eye on different pests that are slowly moving up our way. The Champlain Valley is a bit more geographically isolated, which certainly works to our advantage sometimes. We don't have all the pest issues that they do in the Hudson Valley in western New York, but we also feel like it's just a matter of time before we get some of the others. So just preparing for those as well. I'm Laura McDermott. I work with the Cornell Cooperative Extension Eastern New York Commercial Horticulture Program, and I'm the berry specialist. We serve 17 counties in Eastern New York, which is basically the Route 87 corridor that goes up the eastern side of New York State. It encompasses the Lake Champlain area, the upper Hudson area, the Capital District, and the Lower Hudson, and we come out just a tiny bit west into the Mohawk Valley. What's the geographic or land-type variation across that corridor? Is it pretty consistent? Oh, no. No, it's dramatically different. We have some excellent soils, especially in the valley areas, very deep loamy soils. We have lots of clay outcropping in different areas. We have a ton of just terrain differences because we have little bits of the Catskill Mountains and a lot of the Adirondacks. So we have a lot of hilliness. 
it's very diversified farms. And when you think of it, especially for people in the western part of the state, may forget how small our particular field sizes can be in certain areas. We have very large farms as well, but many of the farms that we work with tend to have smaller pieces that are kind of cut up by hedgerows. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we're interspersed with some pretty dense urban areas. Starting from the north and heading to the south, what is the distribution of, in your case, berries or small fruits? Up in the north, we have a few berry growers of all types. So we have brambles, blueberries, and strawberries being grown. I would say the bulk of the berry production there is blueberry production. Mm -hmm. And then we do have some challenges with some sites in the north because our blueberries, even the northern highbush blueberries, are not always winter hardy. So we have to be careful about variety selection in the northern part of the region. We have some strawberry production, but not as much. I think a lot of that is because the population just isn't as large up in the north country. And then as we go south, it's more evenly distributed between the three large groups of berries, which are brambles and blueberries and then strawberries. And then across the region, we have a few people growing currants and some people growing elderberries and some people working with juneberries, but that acreage is still pretty small. Am I correct in interpreting brambles as blackberries and raspberries? Yes. And raspberries and black raspberries are predominantly what we grow. We do have some blackberry growers in the lower Hudson Valley. And curiously enough, right on the banks of the Mohawk River, we have some really great blackberry production. Just seems to be really warm. That's another kind of an odd thing. Our growing degree days are not consistent with just marching up the latitude really of the region. It's very location dependent. And right there, just a little north of Albany in the Clifton Park area, we get some of the greatest growing degree day accumulation in the whole region. It's very odd. Those that are growing berries, do they typically just grow berries? Do they grow other fruits and vegetables as well? The bulk of the people that I work with are diversified vegetable farmers and a few tree fruit guys that are also growing berries. Many times when we have somebody that's growing just strawberries or just blueberries, it's usually a retired person. It's an endeavor for them. They do a great business with it, but it's a very focused thing primarily for the UPIC audience. And it's usually in an area that doesn't have a lot of other competition. There are a number of folks that are doing just berry crops for UPIC. What is the scale of these farms that you support? Well, we range from half an acre up to about 70 acres of blueberries. Wow. So, Laura, how are berries harvested? Is there a way to harvest with machines, or is this all manual hand-picked labor? There is a way to do machine harvesting, and we're really trying to locate harvesters that are scale appropriate. That's the big problem. A lot of the machine harvesters are so large that they just don't fit our topography and our scale. So we don't have anybody, to my knowledge, except perhaps the one farm that has black currants in the Hudson Valley, they might be using a small machine harvester for currants, but everybody else is using hand labor. Either they're customer base through the UPIC model, or they have on-farm labor. Fascinating to think about all those little raspberries that we're buying in the store or picked by hand. 
Yeah, if they're local, truly across the state, that's true. That's not even just from eastern New York. I'm not aware of anybody that's using a mechanical harvester, especially for raspberries, because they're so tender. Even out in the Pacific Northwest and California, very little. There, there are some bramble harvesters, but there's very little of it being used. It's all hand labor. Wow. Has it been a good year for berries? It's been a slightly above average year. I wouldn't put it in a blockbuster year. The berry quality has been good, but it has been a challenging year for growers. The weather was so inconsistent. The hot weather, especially, I'm dealing with a very perishable fruit. So perishable that it'll even go bad right on the plant. And so you really have to get out there and pick it. Those people that depend on you pick labor really had a challenging year because the customers were not coming out in the heat. When it's above 90 degrees, nobody's going out to pick strawberries. Yeah. So that was really challenging. And then when it finally started raining, we had a bit of a drought here in eastern New York that lasted till about the last week of July. And then it didn't stop raining until the third week of August. So we had a month of rain right when everything was supposed to be being picked. It was really challenging weather-wise. Mm-hmm. We had a phenomenally wonderful spring. Which that uh, resulted in some great June-bearing strawberry production. We had no frosts. I've been doing this for 30 years almost, and I do not remember a season where no one in the region was frosted. It's really amazing. And how does that compare historically to recent trends? Have harvests been fluctuating a lot, or is it consistent? I don't even know what to say about recent trends. It's just so unpredictable lately. I think that's the trend is unpredictability. Our strawberry production in the state has dropped over the past 20 years, relatively significantly, maybe by 25%. And I don't exactly know what to attribute that to. Our blueberry production, on the other hand, has increased statewide. We've got a lot of berries that have been put in over the last 10 years that are just coming into full production. And so we have some really great opportunities there. And I think that bramble production is about the same, pretty small and compared to those other two categories. We have a ton of interest in what I call nutraceutical berries. So all of those really dark colored berries like elderberries and June berries and amelanchier is a June berry. Also aronia, aronia is the other one. Currants are another one, black currants. Very high antioxidants. People just love it when it's added into juice or teas. Hmm. So there's quite a bit of interest in that type of berry still on a fairly small scale. You mentioned UPIC is a big market. How much of the market for berries is UPIC versus something else? I would say it's probably 60% UPIC. Wow. Yeah. As far as an acreage thing, because the bigger farms, the acreage goes into UPIC. They want to have enough berries consistently for those people that come out. From an actual production basis where we're looking at pounds per acre. Sure. I bet we get about 40% hmm. attributed to UPIC, we, or maybe 50 It might be even. It might be about 50-50. I don't have the stats on that. We don't, the way the census information is kept, it's not broken out like that. So it's hard for me to make a, it's kind of, this is a gut. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's curious, though. I, w- I wouldn't have 
thought it was that high. So there's the UPIC market, but then there's the actual commercial harvest. Where do those berries go? Who buys those? Well, it's all direct market pretty much. There's a little bit of wholesale that happens through some of the terminal markets at Manans and maybe down in New York City. It's hard for us to compete with the Pacific Northwest and California with wholesale berries. So a lot of our berries are sold at retail stores like farm stands, farmers markets, direct to buyer like restaurants and things like that. CSAs sometimes will have a berry share. But relatively small amount goes to wholesale buyers that might sell them like a supermarket. It's really direct to consumers. We talked a little bit about the the berries are hand-picked. So who's doing the picking? Is it the the farmers themselves or do they hire labor? Well, some of our small farmers are definitely picking themselves, but they would hire labor. We have still a fair amount of local labor, especially for things like strawberry and blueberry production. We'll have a lot of youth labor that's hired for just that short term. That's still a big part of what we're doing. The other big part is H-2A labor. So that's legal immigrant labor that's doing this. And that's just one of the things they're doing on farms locally. But we really rely very heavily on both groups mm-hmm. for, for harvest labor and for planting and other production tasks. In the ag market, relatively speaking, berry producers are doing okay. They're hanging on. Yeah, they're trying all kinds of innovative things. The projects that I've worked on this summer and for the last few summers have been things with one of our more recent nemesis in the berry world is spotted wing drosophila, and that has changed how we're addressing things. That Berry growing used to be super easy. I mean, we really were able to produce crops organically without too much effort. And that has changed with the advent of that invasive fruit fly. But we're working very hard on biological control, cultural controls. I've been working on exclusion netting, evaluating some of these heavy-duty netting for use out in the field for multiple seasons. Very effective. Mm -hmm. The growers, even before the advent of spotted wing drosophila, were using protected culture both in high and low tunnels, and that has really helped berry quality. We live in a very moist environment here in the Northeast, so that kind of even just dew on fruit can cause some problems with disease. So having a covering over it helps alleviate that without spraying fungicide. So what percentage of your producers are organic? I would say probably 50% are maybe not certified organic, but they're at least growing with certified sustainably grown or some other kind of organic uh, certification or or sustainably grown certification. And you mentioned high tunnels, which is something we're, we're hearing a lot about lately. What percentage of your farmers are actually employing high tunnels? What are the benefits of high tunnels for berry production? So I would say almost 90% of our farms have a tunnel of some kind on the farm for one crop or another. It may not be for berry crops, but they're growing tomatoes in them. They're growing winter greens. They're growing, some people have even tried them for cherries. Brambles, especially raspberries, do beautifully in high tunnels. And because they are so prone to gray mold and botrytis problems, just keeping that little bit of moisture off of them helps amazingly. 
So we have still, it's a fairly small percentage for berries. I would think maybe it's about 25% of the growers that I work with have a tunnel for their berry crops. Are there any emerging trends that we're going to be seeing over the next few years as far as berry production? Are there, you mentioned a few new products. Do you think they'll rise in percentage of production? I think they may rise. I think that for, given what our current farms look like right now, I think there's going to be a little bit more emphasis on agri-entertainment hmm. and that agritourism. I do think there's going to be more interest and emphasis on protected culture, so growing things in low or high tunnels that's really going to be important to our berry producers. I also think we do have a lot of people using berries to flavor these local brewery brews. And they've really worked everything virtually. It's not just berries, but pumpkins are being used in local brews. There's been potatoes grown just for vodka. Uh Uh, And we have a project working on berry wines. So I think that there's a lot of opportunity in this more tourist kind of vein Mm -hmm. that can also support the farms and berry farms specifically. This episode of Extension Out Loud was produced and edited by Paul Treadwell with help and advice from Katie Belden and R.J. Anderson. Mm -hmm.